sport administrators, sport fans and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations. Today we have the honour of being joined by one of the most influential females in the Australian sporting landscape. Belinda Clark played international cricket for the Australian women's national team from 1991 to 2005. Along with being the captain for 11 years, Belinda was the first ever player, male or female, to score a double century in a women's one-day international and retired holding Australia's record for test and one-day international runs and also for one-day international appearances. But it is Belinda's influence and achievements post her playing career that we want to talk about today. Belinda moved into working in development manager positions at Cricket New South Wales and the CEO of Women's Cricket Australia before moving to Cricket Australia and holding numerous positions in operations, team performance and community cricket. Belinda has recently turned attention to starting a new venture to support the development of leadership capability and confidence in young girls. We are so excited to chat to Belinda. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Welcome, Belinda. Thank as well. you so much. That's very nice to speak to you. Now, the question that we always start with and we always really enjoy hearing about, can you tell us about your earliest memory in sport? Yeah, well, I think our memories are impacted by photos that we see, you know, family photos on walls and stuff. So the first um, memory I have, and I'll give you um, one that's also jogged by a photo, but the first memory I have is playing cricket in the backyard and hitting a tennis ball against the garage wall, which made a horrible sound, but I did it for most of my youth and loved it. So they're all very informal, um, informal sort of opportunities older brother and older sister who both played sport mum and dad played sport so you know there was rackets bats and balls all over the place um, and and the one that my memory is jogged by a photo was my sister and I who's two years younger than I so there's four of us all together in a playpen while my mum played tennis in some country town in New South Wales so that was her way of controlling us um, I would have been <laughs> probably three and my sister one and we were in the playpen for the whole for the set or two sets, whatever they were playing, but a bit of fun in the playpen. That That's how parents used to do it. Mums yeah. and bubs, always successful programs. Yeah. yeah. And so what was it that made you choose cricket as your, your sport? I mainly played tennis when I was a kid, up until the age of probably 12 or 13. It was all tennis and a little bit of netball. Family's mainly a tennis family. So I think it was uh, my older brother's influence, who is five years older than me, and that was the time of World Series cricket. So cricket went from being, you know, white clothes, boring, five days to this exciting under lights, coloured clothing. And I think I was just captivated by the fact that this this was an exciting thing on the television and my brother played. So I was just fascinated by it. What was the experience like as a female? I think you said country New South Wales. Was there opportunities there for you? Uh, there wasn't until I went to high school. Uh, there was a, I grew up in Newcastle and there was a, a girls cricket team at school and I found it in year eight at the same time I sort of found a hockey stick and something else so I sort of swapped I kept playing tennis all the way through but my attention started to move towards team sports more seriously and I think I'm I'm much better with a bat and a ball than just a ball um, or just me so that's how I got started but I used to take my cricket bat to primary school on the you know across my handlebars to play uh, in the nets with the boys having no no idea that I'd ever be able to actually play um, so the fundamental love of the game was really about the, the, the exchange between bat and ball and the technical stuff. Um, you know, I never thought I'd actually get a chance to play a real game. Do you think that influenced 
your career post playing a little bit in terms of making sure those opportunities were available and not only were they available, that they were really well serviced? Oh, absolutely. I think um, having had that experience as a uh, a young girl growing up and finding, you know, what it's like to, to first, you know, to get to play your first game. It was, you know, super exciting and it was a, you know, a game out in the back of nowhere in a, a school a school match um, with a kit of gear which was all oversized and it was all it was all could have been horrible gone horribly wrong but it was um it was good fun. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So you know, teachers that care and provide opportunities for kids to play all sorts of different sports, I've got a great respect for them. And community clubs. I mean, I got. I turned up at a um, someone's house to to register to play in a season with the boys, and this guy didn't bat an eyelid. Signed me up. I was the only girl in the comp, and you know, you sort of think back to those moments. Um, could easily have said, no, we don't have girls in this competition. Um, it was an under sixteen boys comp. I was fourteen. I was totally out of my depth, but very well accepted both within the club and also the association. So you just think back. I mean, that's a long time ago now. It could easily have gone another way. Yeah, it's a bit of a sliding doors moment, really, because if that gentleman said no, you know, you've gone on to be one of the most successful cricketers in Australia. So how crazy that 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 one point when you were 14 really determined whether you would continue playing. Yeah, and look, there's a there's a series of those through my life that I just scratch my head and say, how the hell did I land there? You know, my brother was playing cricket at a premier club in Newcastle and the captain of that team, his sister played for Australia. Now, I didn't know she did. I didn't know who she was, but she was travelling to Sydney to play cricket in the women's comp. And at the age of 15, I'd just get into the car with her and drive to Sydney to play cricket to come back, you know, Saturday night. And my mum and dad, that that was all cool. That was fine that that I would go and do that. Now, these days, it'd be it'd probably you know, mum and dad have been in the car with you. And so it's, yeah, just, I'm just lucky. There's a whole range of those moments through through the career. You obviously had a really successful playing career, but you've gone on to forge a great career on the administrative side as well. But originally you trained to be a physiotherapist. What made you make the switch into more of the strategy and business and leadership positions? Oh, I was broke. <laughs> so um, I went, uh, I went overseas. I worked as a physio for 18 months uh, and it was at the time when I was uh, I was playing for Australia. Life was really busy with, you know, I was finished study, I was working, I was living in Sydney, working in Wollongong, a lot of travel. And so I decided it was time to go backpacking. So I went backpacking, came home, no job, no money, and thought I'll just do some coaching. So I went down to the local private girls' school. I was coaching hockey, I was coaching tennis, I was coaching cricket, and then I ended up um, working in cricket and then never went back. So here I am. I mean, you mentioned it was because you needed some money, but you were the captain for, you know, over 11 years as well. So I imagine leadership comes naturally to you. Have you always been a natural leader? I think there's elements of leadership that come naturally in terms of a sporting context. So things like the tactical awareness and, you know, having fun with your teammates and, you know, getting along with staff and developing shared goals and all that sort of stuff that that comes quite easily but there's a whole heap of stuff that is not in that bucket and I've had to learn that and I'm still learning it and you never actually master it so it's it's once once you're on that journey and you're working with people it's yeah it's a challenge and it's you never get it right all the time when you say you're always continuing to learn and work on it what are some of the ways that you do that I do um I do a lot of reflection you know, thinking about how other people would solve problems. I listen to a lot of podcasts. 
a lot of people are saying podcast and I always interrupt and say, I hope you're listening to our podcast. Of course, of course. <laughs> but I think, you know, once once you've listened to something, what I've worked out, once you've listened to something, it's really important that you talk to someone else about it. So I've got a group of people that um, I've, I've worked with along the journey who are like-minded and we're forever flicking each other different things to read or podcasts or things to try and then circling back. So I think once you've set up a nice network of people that are, sharing and learning together you you start to grab the insights and not not all about consumption it's actually about how do I make sense of this and then use it and during your time at Cricket Australia Cricket New South Wales and women's cricket you made huge ground for the game in and especially the women's game Um, I read in an interview and it mentioned the benefits female cricketers enjoy today. So things like professional um, support teams, international schedule of matches, significant salary increases. And it it mentioned that all these changes were advocated and shaped by yourself. So how do you feel now, you know, looking back at your time in cricket, knowing you had such an impact on women and girls playing the game from both, you know, grassroots all the way through to professional? I feel like I just played a part in that journey. So when you've been through that experience yourself, I think you do have a better understanding of what are the hurdles that people face and what are the <clears throat> the points of clash or tension that come to, to do that. But what's absolutely critical is the, the people around you. So the leaders of the organisation in James Sutherland and Pat Howard in particular, people like that are on the board, Jackie Hay, or, you know, the chairs of the board, Chris Matthews, who's CEO of the WACA, you know, they or everyone plays their part and when there's something that is, you know, the conversation starts to get wobbly, someone comes and crushes through and actually pushes the conversation forward. You need to have a lot of people doing that, otherwise the conversations stop it and it, and it starts to regress or stand still. So I, I have great admiration for the people I worked with because once they got it, they pushed really hard and um, it took a lot of people pushing to get us to where we are today. And speaking of where we are today, if you go back, just over a year ago now and obviously the Women's World Cup in Melbourne and it was probably you know the biggest sporting event for 2020 given what happened but probably would have been up there anyway when you have moments like that how does that make you reflect on I guess all of the past work is that one of them or is it just sort of every day you're impressed by what's going on? Oh no that's a that was a a particular moment in time that uh, was amazing and we had invited a lot of the past um, Australian players to come that night and just watching them sit in their seats and watch the the, the place light up. It, they, they couldn't believe it. I mean, some of these people are, you know, 60, 70 years old and, you know, it just they just could not believe that this was happening. And I was a bit the same. I was sitting there thinking, how have we, how the hell have we pulled this off? So it was just a monumental moment in time. And it actually led to me thinking, okay, I feel like I've done my part for cricket and it's time for me to move move on to do something else it was a and I didn't move on straight away but when I reflect back that was just a moment in time where I thought you know what I just feel like that's been such a lot of work and effort from a lot of people um, and it's time to now go and do something else. It's such a nice story and reflection like you sort of got to this point of felt like I guess the pinnacle and it was time to move on was it a tough decision or do you just feel so content after something like that it sounds like you're pretty comfortable with it. I think the decision had probably been coming at me for a while as well but yeah, lucky. Yes, it was a tough decision because I love the people I worked with. Um, you know, obviously there was passion and purpose in what I did every day. But you also got to be careful. You don't, know, you know, just keep doing things through habit. I just felt like it was time to give the sport freedom. I suppose. I mean, tw- I've been there twenty years. Um, my view was pretty clear, and all through the organisation. So that's not fair. That that's 
that then, I mean, that can at some point hold things back. So I was really conscious it was probably best for me and I think it's best for the sport just to get to get some um, some distance and um, I still watch fondly and, and contribute in other ways. But, yeah, it was just time. I just knew it. It's, uh, it's a really selfless outlook that you're talking. It's something that I don't think we've spoken a lot about with previous guests in terms of moving on and, and when when you're ready to move on. So it's a nice reflection. So you're now the founder of the Leadership Playground. Can you tell us a little bit about your new venture? Yeah, so the concept really came to me, you know, as I was learning and reflecting and thinking about what's next. And it just dawned on me that most of the things that are critical to, you know, building confidence, building skills, building capability, you know, having the courage to step forward when the opportunities arise, most of those things have happened through just either luck or through experience of coming in contact with certain people or certain ideas. Um, they're not taught to you, really. They're not in any sporting program. They're not in any school curriculum. And I just thought it'd be good to be able to package that up and, and circle back and see if there's a way of helping young girls sort of navigate through what is a, you know, a pretty tough 10 to 15-year-olds. It's a pretty tough little period of life to sort of navigate. Uh, and then also um, I can see coming into the sport now as females um, are being professionalised with more money coming into the game. I feel like there's a gap in helping young players establish leadership skills to step into leadership groups or into um, opportunities that will come. Um, highly skilled athletes coming through the pathways and I suspect they'll be leading before too long and I just want to make sure that there's an opportunity for them to to sort of reflect and learn and play with leadership before they've got, you know, the blowtorch you know, firing at them. Um, so that that's the other sort of concept that I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, it sounds great um, and something that's very much needed. I mean, you mentioned their leadership in young females coming up through the ranks, but something that is pretty evident in sport in Australia at the moment is the lack of female leaders at the top end um, in sport. So I think, I mean, we could definitely count the female CEOs on one hand at the moment. What do you think um, we need to do to encourage women or the people selecting these positions to give um, more females a go in these these CEO or leadership positions within sport? I think there's two things. One is the environment that sport is needs to just keep looking at itself and asking the question, how would we cope with a leader that's different to what we've experienced previously? What are the ways that not only the organisation but then the, the model of people, like the, whether it's a federated model or whether it's, you know, a different model, what's the reaction of all those people and how do we make sure we've got, you know, females throughout the sport at varying levels playing various roles to basically make that a normal normal thing that there is a, just a normal step? So I think having the organisations think hard about whether or not they're open and inclusive in that way and, and how they would cope with that. And the second thing is just making sure that you know, females that are coming through the sport ranks or that want to work in sport at the very high levels, it's a tough gig and you get, you know, it's a it's a life choice. It's not it's not something you do nine to five. It's it's all consuming. And um, how do you make sure that people are, are equipped to handle that as well? What do you think some of the barriers are, though? Like, why do you think we're not seeing this or why do you think we can't see some female CEOs staying around for the long term? Uh, I think if you look at the pipeline, you know, at what point did you know, female executives become, you know, prominent around, you know, sports tables. And it hasn't really been a long time. I mean, I was in cricket for 20 years and I walked into an environment that was basically male 
Um, it was male in the stakeholders. It was male at state level. It was, and, and it takes time. Look, I, I'm reasonably positive about where we can get to. Disappointing that a couple of the CEOs that were females have, have now um, resigned from positions. But I, I think, again, that just tells you that, you know, these jobs are difficult, life-consuming jobs, and people need to adjust environments to make sure that females and males can both do them. Yeah, you were a CEO of Women's Cricket Australia at one point in your career and you steered the organisation through the integration with Cricket Australia. What was that process like? It was fascinating because I was also playing at the time. I was captaining the team at the time too, so probably wouldn't happen today in terms of conflicts, but um, I didn't give I didn't give the players any pay. Uh, we, we were way, way away from that, so that was probably that was probably easier to manage. It was a fascinating experience. Malcolm Speed was the CEO of the Australian Cricket Board and Dame Quentin Bryce was the president of Women's Cricket Australia. Um, You could not meet two more philosophically aligned people in terms of their desire for the sport to be open and inclusive. Now convincing both the Women's Association and the Men's Association that this was a good idea, that took um, a high level of skill from a range of people and that wasn't me, that was those two that were, were doing that. But I think the intention was positive each other worked out that the motives of each was positive and we put in a two-year trial. So if it all went pear-shaped, there was a get-out-of-jail card, which I think was important probably for the women in terms of losing what they thought they would lose autonomy and from the men who thought that this was going to be a resource-rich investment, which, uh, to be honest, it was always going to be because you can't make change of that nature and, and get an international team and a grassroots system firing if you're not going to invest in it. But um, I think we convinced them that, that that was a worthwhile investment for the sport's future. Obviously, having those stakeholders that, that you said that were sort of leading, that were so willing to to be open and inclusive would have made that process a little bit easier. Can you maybe talk to us about some of the more challenging projects you might have been a part of and how you've dealt with them? Probably the, the most challenging project I had was um, uh, working in uh, high performance in the in the exec role um, through the Cameron Bancroft, Dave Warner, Steve Smith sort of reintegration into the team at the end of their suspension. That was probably the hardest. And the reason it was hard, not because they were difficult, but because it was such a public, such a public interesting debate about what they did and who was at fault. And Yeah, everyone had a say. It was oh, so, everyone had I a mean, say. Yeah. Yeah. And every time I, you know, went anywhere, there was someone wanting a, a, a media interview on where are you up to and what are you doing and how are you going about it and when can we talk to them. So I just felt like that was a very difficult time because at the at the end of the day, the people that were most important in that was the Australian cricket team, the men's team, Justin Langer, Gavin Doby, he's a team manager, the two captains, and it was just really important that they had time and space um, to work through that properly. So part of my job really was to try and keep the wolves at bay, whether that be internally, the media or other people that were just nosy. Just keep it at bay and, and give give the, the guys a chance to work through it and, and get their heads around how they were going to come back together and, and fight hard for the team. So that was the most challenging piece I had, and I think it was probably because it was human emotions tangled up in it and also the you know the media was like hungry for information which I was determined not to give them. You mentioned the media were hungry for information so were the general public during that phase was that a bit of a challenge as well like I know Sarah and I worked on some some of the player quarantine stuff but we're pretty removed from it in general compared to others and we'd go to barbecues and they'd be like oh these tennis players couldn't sum in and you felt like you had to justify yourself and you're like oh, I've just worked ridiculous hours Did you find that process challenging outside of the media as well? Uh, Yeah, everyone wanted to know because it's a high-profile sport. It was a high-profile incident and it was a high-profile punishment. 
and people would love to have seen the inner workings and the the stuff because either sells newspapers or it gives people something to talk about. But I was very clear that, you know, these guys have been put through the ringer. They've done the wrong thing. They've paid their price. And my responsibility was to the team, but you've got to give people space. And the last thing they needed was being hounded by people they would have copped enough. And whether you think that was right, wrong or indifferent, the bottom line was they served their time and it was and they, they deserved the chance to come back in and, and play a, an important role in the team going forward. So were you um, then executive for high performance at the time when the documentary was filmed as well, so that Amazon series, um, because I thought that really showed us some of the insights as to how they work as a team as well, and I found that really interesting. Yeah, I was for the first part of it. I finished up in that role um, at the start of the Ashes. I did up until the World Cup, um, and a lot of the filming was done prior to that, and then obviously the Ashes campaign became, you know, the big the big sort of finale but you know that I, I thought the team did a great job in giving an insight into what it's what it's like and I think those kind of sport documentaries are going to become huge because we look at the Michael Jordan one and the test you know the test and then the AFL one that they did recently for last year as well and everyone's so interested but it goes to your point that the general public just want to know everything about what's happening, what's in on the inside. And so it's up to the sport and to work with companies like Amazon and the media to give them at least a little bit of a picture. Otherwise, that they'll just be more relentless on wanting more information. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're interesting projects and I think it worked out really well. But yeah, I mean, and there's a camera every, everywhere all the time. Um, now, the players got used to it, but I kept saying to them, do you have to have all the swearing in it? My, my nephews are going to watch this. I don't know that I want them to. The AFL them. one had so much swearing in oh, it. I don't want them to come out when they get out, come and throw their helmet and, oh, you're meant to replace your helmet when that happens and there's a lot of swearing. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, I was being a bit of a um, Pollyanna, I think. <laughs> there's lots of athletes that have to get used to that now like you think about the footy codes how there's cameras now in the the change rooms and there is that age-old argument as to whether the um, camera should be there especially when someone's injured and they're seeing that raw emotion but bluntly money talks right so someone sold them the access to the the change rooms and that's what they have yeah and once one sport does it it's very difficult to yeah. hold hold it back after that so Look, I, I think the media have done a pretty good job of not being, you know, too in your face when they're in there. I, I'd imagine the players are used to it and they've, they've got some boundaries set up. So fingers crossed it doesn't go further than it's currently at. I think you made a really good point there when you were talking there where you said, you know, you're worried about the swearing and the throwing of the helmets and the impact of what it might have on younger kids. I think that's one of the benefits of having females in leadership positions. And I think the most recent example of this is that Chelsea Randall missed the AFLW grand final because of concussion, come out and said, I'm not going to contest this. This makes perfect sense. And the ripple that that will send down through the junior ranks and community football to say that, oh, well, Chelsea missed a game. I can miss a game compared to Nick Rewalt, who, you know, I understand his perspective that he's worked his whole life for this one thing that he never got to have. But he came out and said, I would contest it. I would go to, you know, every high court in Australia. It's just such a different perspective. And I think the Chelsea one was definitely right. Sport is a game, right? And it's not worth... I mean, when you're an athlete and you're driving to achieve stuff, you don't consider the consequences of those decisions and you see it all the time. And to step back and understand, actually, this is in my best interest, I think it was a very mature response from her. But, it, I mean, it's it's just dumb. Like, it, it's not worth the risk. 
it's not worth the risk and you can't see that when you're in it and you've trained so hard for it and it might be your only chance i get all that but you know you're talking about quality of life and bigger issues than whether or not you win a game as much as it means to you i mean i'm really clear on what sport is and it's it's a game to be enjoyed and we've professionalized it and we've made it entertainment but at, at its core this is a sport and you do it for fun and you do it because you're good at it and then you move on and the next person comes and plays like no one owns it no one it's just that, yeah. that's what I, I've got a really strong belief of, of, of that and I just think that sometimes people get a bit wound up in it yeah it was always good speaking of fun what has been the most rewarding piece of work that you've achieved in your career so far easily uh the way that kids play the game we changed the the junior format that that kids participate in um and that was like a bit of a passion project for me i just um, was horrified when i went to watch um, kids play cricket and saw that they were spending three hours standing still um and the only ones having fun were the ones climbing the trees that were waiting to bat (laughs) maybe Um, maybe that's why i didn't like cricket because growing up that was my version of cricket exactly right yes yeah how long do i have to stand still for while i watch you bowl wide um so to be able to research that properly um design a game that was a lot more entertaining a lot better for skill development a lot quicker a lot more action-packed um that was really satisfying and and we've got you know most of the country now playing playing those formats through those junior years and it's such a better game and even the people that were the biggest naysayers originally uh, once they saw it in action many of them became the biggest advocates so that that is that was a three or four year exercise and I'm um, I've just got my fingers crossed that it sticks and, you know, some bright spark doesn't come and unwind it because someone's not being able to play test cricket because they've never batted for four hours and bored the other kids senseless. So I just, again, I just think sport's there to have fun and the kids that are good are good and they'll come through the system. Yeah. We, need to, we need to worry about the 95% that are never going to play at a high level, but they love it. Did you have yeah. many um, naysayers when you, because, you know, there's a lot of traditionalists and in cricket, in many sports, tennis, footy, that the thought of changing it is just, they can't imagine anything worse. Yeah, it had a lot to start with yeah, and right. just sort of bit by bit we um, convinced them and, and that was the workforce. It was a, a group of development staff that worked across the country, you know, two or 300 of them that worked tirelessly to go to local meetings, to do demonstrations, to talk to the parents. It wasn't, it wasn't the kids that were the problem, it was the adults and as soon as the kids got a chance to play it and the parents could see the smiles and the fact that it was entertaining and fun and they actually could do it, they could actually get a game to happen because someone could bowl on on the wicket, someone could hit it, someone could run, like there was action. And the parents are like, oh, the the biggest indicator we had that it was working was that the scorers kept telling us that the game was going too fast for them to keep up. And I just thought, brilliant, it's working. That's a, that's a lovely indicator. When I stop hearing that, I'll be worried. That's an awesome story. I love that. And I love that, you know, you've obviously been involved in some high performance teams and things like that, but this is such a rewarding and memory for you and one that sticks out as well. I think, you know, everyone's got great memories of community sport and everyone's played community sport, you know, not everyone unfortunately makes it to the high performance level. So it's nice that that is uh, so high on your list. Would you say that that's what you want your legacy to be or are there things that you're continuing to work on? Uh, that that's probably the main that's the main one you know I just was lucky to be involved in a whole range of really interesting projects over over my time but that's the one that sticks out because of the complexity of implementing across so many people over you know two or three hundred associations across the country there's a there's a lot there was a lot of resistance to start with 
Yeah, and it's a huge, huge change. We have just one final question. Um, I mean, you've given us lots of tips already, but what are the top three tips you would give um, a budding female sports administrator starting her journey? Okay, top three. Learn, learn, learn is number one. Take on assignments that are different and interesting and possibly scary, but take them on and have a go at them and just, you know, go for it. That's probably the first one. Uh, the second one is, um, you know, listen and try and find a way of understanding someone else's perspective because it's not often what the person is saying that's important. It's why they're saying or why their belief system is leading them to that conclusion. And you've actually got to listen and ask questions to get to get to the nub of why. And, and when you're there, you can start to solve a problem together. Um, and the last one is um, just to be really clear on, you know, why you do what, what you do, why you work in sport, because if you're if you think you're on it to make yourself famous or earn a lot of money, you're on the wrong train. You, you know, but if you're there to serve people and to make make things better for the next generation, it's um, you know a really satisfying place to find yourself. But um, just make sure that you're clear on why you turn up every day, because when you hit hurdles, you need to have that to fall back on. Yeah, love I love one. that, especially that yeah that last one. We know that yeah, I think a lot of people from the outside think sports really glamorous, and sometimes it's not. But yeah, we all remember why we do it. And I think you spoke to that really well around the the community aspect and, and seeing kids playing and enjoying sport is the reason why, um, you know, a lot of us get involved and we get to work in the industry. That's the passion of, you know, billions and billions of people around the world. So we're pretty fortunate in that respect. Thank you so much for your time, Belinda. We've loved talking to you and we look forward to following your next project and seeing what you do next. So thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely thank to you. meet you both. Thanks. See ya. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sports Intuition Podcast. If you did, we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a rating and any reviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.